You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. Welcome to Faith 2020. I am your host, Michael Ware, and I'm here to help you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Friends, I am excited to be where we are right now. We have aired four historical episodes that uh, walked you through democratic presidential elections primarily and how faith intersected with those elections. And we had some wonderful guests and we're going to draw on what we learned from them throughout the rest of the show. We're grateful for Amy Sullivan, Joshua Dubois, and Amy Chozik for joining us in those first four episodes. But now we are moving into episodes that focus explicitly on 2020. And as you know, our goal each episode is not to cover every conceivable issue, but through the accumulation of interviews, analysis on different subjects from different angles, and through covering the latest news on Faith in 2020, that by the time voting begins, you will have a holistic appreciation of how faith helped define and decide the 2020 race. To that end, in this week's episode, we have a very special guest, our first guest of really uh, the, the Faith 2020 podcast to the extent that's focusing on 2020, and that is United States Senator Chris Coons. Uh, we are so thrilled to have uh, Senator Coons with us. I had a wonderful conversation with Senator Coons, and I'm excited to share it with you. Before we get to that conversation, though, there is some news to share. And that is this week, the Democratic National Committee announced that they are rehiring Reverend Derek Harkins for this cycle. Uh, there was an indication in the release that that he might be on, on the DNC beyond the cycle. We'll, we'll see if that holds. But it is a significant announcement that the DNC is bringing on someone to do faith outreach. Now, you might remember in the episode on 2012 and 2016, I mentioned that while I was over on the campaign side for President Obama's re-election campaign running faith, we had staff at the DNC too. Uh, what I uh, did mention in that episode is that the person running faith at the DNC in 2012 was Reverend Derek Harkins. And so I want to talk through a bit about what this means. I've seen some chatter from folks that have noted that Reverend Harkins has been at Union Seminary in New York uh, for the last several years. Indication that that means he comes from a you know very particular slice of American Christianity that might be limiting. A couple things on that. First, everyone who comes from somewhere is going to come from a particular slice and perspective. The role of a faith staffer is not to be everybody, everything to everybody, but to be able to reach as many people as possible and to be able to build a team and pull a team together and find connection points even when that might not be part of their personal history. So I'll say that. The most important thing when it comes to Reverend Harkins is, yes, everyone comes from a particular location. There are few people who who have the who have the experience in as many different streams of American Christianity as Reverend Harkins. Uh, Reverend Harkins was the pastor of a historic black church uh, 19th Street Baptist uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is someone who has served on the board of National Association of Evangelicals and, I believe, World Relief. 
as well, the international development arm. I may, may be uh, wrong on that, but he, he's, held, he's held board positions at mainstream evangelical organizations. And then he, he's been at Union, uh, which is you know, now in a fairly ecumenical uh, institution with roots in mainline Protestantism. And so, look, you're not going to find many, many people that have been able to swim in all those streams. Derek Harkins is someone who is a, a nimble person. He's going to be able to do a good job. You know, I would prefer if the DNC didn't fire their faith staff after every election or let them go, whatever. If their intention was to hold on to faith staff, even when it wasn't election year, because that's the way you build institutional memory. That's the way you build relationships. But, you know, a second best option is bringing back Reverend Harkins, who's done it before, who won't have as much of a transition as might otherwise have. The the question with these positions, as always, is just what is Reverend Harkins' mandate? To what extent does the leadership of the DNC view faith outreach as critical or just as something to have so that they could say that they have it. You know, the proof will be in the pudding there. According to reports, Reverend Harkins has also already held uh, several meetings. One, a meeting with an ecumenical group, uh, an interfaith group of religious leaders. Uh, another meeting with the Union of Affirming uh, Christians pro-same-sex marriage LGBT uh, group run out of Union Seminary. So that, so that makes sense. And we'll see how he moves forward. Here's what I'd say. You know, from a political perspective, one helpful thing about having someone doing faith at DNC is that if you have that from a presidential campaign perspective, the best arrangement, in my view, is to have the DNC faith folks working a lot with the DC progressive faith advocacy groups, working a lot with core sort of political base faith outfits and leaders, and working to build longstanding support that will not just, uh, that is not just aimed at supporting the presidential nominee, whoever that uh, turns out to be, but supporting the party long term. There are a bunch of reasons for this. One of them is DNC really doesn't have too strong of a policy mandate. D, uh, the DNC faith director could, if he has the sway, place people on the policy platform committee and be helpful in a range of sort of informal ways in affecting policy. But th that's not really the role. And so you're really hamstrung by whatever the platform is at the time and whatever policies the DNC is holding you to. In other words, you can't be meeting with people and making promises that certain policies are going to be advanced or opposed or whatever as DNC uh, faith director. That, that it's, it's just not the role. Uh, and so if the DNC faith director is focused on sort of core democratic constituency, and especially, you know, folks in the advocacy space already, what that frees up the presidential campaigns to do is to be a bit broader in outreach because presidential campaigns do have the ability to set policy uh, directions and be attuned to the particular politics of the candidate they're working for and not be so tied to the party. It was really important in my view. And I don't know if Joshua Dubois and I have 
discuss this explicitly, but I always felt it was important for for me in 2012, especially for him in 2008, as he was introducing, uh, helping to introduce Barack Obama to the faith community. It was really important that he wasn't a long-standing Democratic operative who had, you know, worked for four presidential campaigns previously and and everyone knew, hey, this is a guy who's trying to get people to vote for Democrats. Uh, Joshua was able to go in a room and say, look, 80% of my time in politics, maybe even more, has been working for Barack Obama uh, because I believe in this man. There's a, an ability to give a fresh introduction to someone and especially make religious leaders feel like they're not buying into an entire political party apparatus. But but no, I just want you to consider this candidate. That That's so critical. The campaigns are going to have the opportunity to do that as well, potentially. They may choose a different direction. They may choose someone who does have a longer reputation, and there are upsides to that and downsides to that. I believe if you have someone like Harkins at DNC, you have the ability to have someone with the campaigns that can be attuned to the particular idiosyncrasies and particulars of that candidate. And again, on the campaign, you're able to do faith outreach that is broader reaching. The DNC is not going to be very effective at reaching out to conservative or moderate white evangelicals. There's just a lot of baggage there. They should do the work to the extent that they can. It would be great for the DNC to make sure that there are some people at the table there challenging them where they need to be challenged and to find some surprising connections on points of common interest. So, you know, DNC should do as much as it's willing and able to do. I, I just know the constraints that, that come with that. On the campaign, you can do all kinds of things. And and we, we talked with Joshua Dubois and I shared a bit from 2012 about what Barack Obama's campaigns were able to do. We heard from Amy Sullivan and Amy Chozik about what the nominees in 2004 and 2016 chose not to do and, and in my view, you know, suffered for it. And then just the last piece I'd say with, with a campaign faith advisor is you're able to make deeper connections with, with base communities that would have a particular affinity for or connection with your candidate. And so the DNC is doing broad, you know, here's the Democratic Party agenda. Here's where you could plug in long term on the campaigns. You don't need that, that burden. You don't need to, this is about making the case for your candidate to America's diverse religious communities and letting it rest on that, not having to defend every Democratic policy, not having to relitigate uh, everything that's happened over the last, you know, however many uh, years in democratic politics. No, you're responsible for your candidate and that can be a real benefit and provides uh, significant freedom. To that point, I've been talking to reporters and reporters have been asking me, you know, how do you feel about faith outreach on these campaigns, on the democratic campaign so far? And my general answer has been, you know, I, I think it certainly looks a lot more promising than it has uh, than it did in 2016. I do provide the caution that much of what has been discussed as faith outreach, much of what has been discussed as, wow, Democrats are really, you know, picking it up with religious rhetoric, much of it has been in response to religious questions from media. Uh, one pithy way of saying it is that CNN has been the leader in faith outreach this campaign cycle, not any of the candidates so far. There are real exceptions to that. You know, it, it was notable to me that in his announcement speech, 
coming on the heels of a lot of attention to his faith rhetoric in response to CNN questions. And I believe The View asked him about his faith and that being a big topic uh, that Pete Buttigieg didn't really use any of that rhetoric in his announcement speech. I believe he mentioned his pastor once, but uh, he, he didn't mention any of the sort of big faith claims that had gotten so much attention and that were circulating on, on social media. But faith certainly hasn't been absent from Judge's campaign since the announcement. And so it'll be interesting to see how that grows. To Buttigieg, he, along with Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, have announced that they're hiring for faith outreach directors. And so that is very promising. Like I was saying, I've been telling reporters, you know, it's very important for these campaigns to get faith outreach staff. I haven't been too nervous yet. My my, my deadline uh, that I've been kind of giving has been end of summer, that, that serious campaigns should have faith outreach staff by the end of the summer. And so for Senator Cory Booker and for Mayor Pete Buttigieg to be uh, putting up job postings, asking for faith staff is is promising. And those are two good candidates to to do it. There's a lot to work with, with both of them. They, they uh, both have a long history of both personally processing faith and having to navigate faith issues on the public stage. And so a faith outreach director on these campaigns isn't going to have to build from nothing, isn't going to have to work from scratch. There's a foundation there to work with. And so it will be interesting to see who those campaigns hire and what that says about how they view faith outreach. I will note it's interesting for these job postings it seems clear that they are that the faith outreach director is reporting to coalitions director, not to an African American outreach director. And the reason I say that is that unfortunately, too often in Democratic campaigns, and we've discussed this in, in the previous episodes, faith outreach just turns out to be a euphemism for another way to boost turnout among African Americans, which is very important. But when even your black church outreach isn't really faith outreach, but is actually, and we did talk about this with Joshua Dubois, when when your black church outreach isn't really faith outreach, but just part of your black outreach team and the church is just where you could find a bunch of black people uh, to convene and turn out, there's political value to that. It's not really faith outreach. And so to have these campaigns structured in a way that they're not Sayings again, just from the structure. We'll see how how uh, how this turns out, how it's actually operationalized. But to have the faith outreach director reporting to a constituency director or to a coalitions director, it indicates a view that these campaigns are going to treat faith outreach as faith outreach. That they're going to view black Christians and Hispanic Catholics and Muslims, not as a subset of a of a racial category, but for the faith outreach director, those voters are going to be viewed and appealed to and reached through the prism of faith, which is the point of having a faith outreach director. Again, you could have other staff working with the same communities through a different lens, but if you're going to have faith outreach, and you should, then it's important to take seriously the faith commitments of the communities you're you're reaching out to. And so that is the big news this week that we have seen, which we haven't always been able to take for granted, 
we've been able to see the Democratic infrastructure, both on the party side and some early signs on the campaign side, hire faith outreach staff. Of course, we we also saw, and we're not going to talk about it too much on this episode, uh, because I think we're going to have ample opportunity to discuss uh, the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Barber, uh, Reverend Barber's work and and the work of that that entire effort in later episodes. Hint, hint. But we did see nine candidates, including many of the the, the leaders, come to the Poor People's Campaign event in D.C. and talk in a really focused way about poverty that, again, has not always been able uh, to be taken for granted, that you'd have Democratic candidates speaking explicitly about the poor, not just working class, those aspiring to the middle class, but addressing problems of, of real poverty. And I'll close this segment just by pointing out that this shows a real leverage point that faith uh, outreach on both sides, campaigns reaching out to faith communities and faith communities trying to influence campaigns can really have. I know that in previous presidential elections and in previous midterms, talking about the poor too much was seen as a big risk. And to be clear, it is a big risk. There are deep sources of skepticism among slices of the electorate when you start talking about addressing poverty. Uh, There are all kinds of uh, stereotypes, some rational policy concerns, some not so rational like there's data to back the idea that you wouldn't want to talk about poverty too much if you want to win in a general election. What's been interesting to see is that even in light of that data, which is the point of advocacy, right? Like like if campaigns were going to operate by just, you know, a certain set of data points, then what would be the point of advocacy, especially directly to campaigns? The point of advocacy is to change the incentive structure and make things that maybe wouldn't have been chosen by the campaigns, turn those things into things, uh, into decisions that campaigns feel like they have to make. And in my view, that's what William Barber did and his team did with having that cattle call of folks being asked pretty direct questions about poverty. Now, that was through one lens. That was through poor people's campaign lens. They have a set of policy priorities and a specific philosophy that isn't shared by the whole faith community. So you can't go to poor people's campaign and be like, oh, there's our faith outreach for the for the cycle. But it's, it's still significant that that was a convening moment. And we'll see how that grows and if there are other moments, especially as we get closer to voting. Because remember, a year out from primaries, Hillary Clinton was speaking at her home denomination's Methodist, I believe it was a, a women's uh, lay conference. You know, in 2004, we saw some stuff. We saw in 2008, like an early convening that Faith in Public Life and some progressive faith groups hosted. So, so, like, we just have to see if this grows. And again, the fact that the DNC hired folks and that Booker and Buttigieg are hiring faith staff, which will hopefully put pressure on some of the other campaigns to do the same is significant. All right, that's that's the news and analysis you're going to get from me this week. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk to one of the leading voices in the Democratic Party today on issues of faith, and that is Senator Chris Coons. And I could not be more pleased to, to have him on the show. When we get back, we'll talk with Senator Chris Coons.
We're back with the Faith 2020 podcast. Our guest for this episode, really the first guest of the podcast to the extent that it's focusing on 2020 explicitly, is United States Senator Chris Coons. Now, Senator Chris Coons is someone I've come to really respect over the last several years. I view him as one of, if not the principal voice in the Democratic Party and visionary when it comes to how the Democratic Party should approach issues of faith and should approach Americans of religious belief. He's more than an appropriate guest for the the podcast. Now, Senator Chris Coons represents Delaware. Important to note, and we'll try and uh, note this for all of our guests to the extent that we have access to that information. Senator Chris Coons is endorser of former Vice President Biden's campaign, Vice President Biden, of course, being from Delaware uh, as well. And so we talk about that. And it's really an important reason to have him on the show. Uh, Senator Chris Coons is one of the leading endorsers of the, uh, at this point, the leading Democratic candidate for the presidency. And so we're, we're honored to have him on for that reason. We're also honored to have him on again because of the work that he's put into and the thoughtfulness he brings to thinking about Democrats in faith. And so we talk about what he thinks that should look like in 2020 and and what he thinks the case to uh, faith voters needs to be from the Democratic Party and our eventual nominee. Now, uh, Senator Chris Coons has worked hard to earn a reputation as a principled, pragmatic legislator. Uh, He's emerged as a strong voice for job creation and the innovation economy, responsible deficit reduction, progressive social justice, and forward-looking foreign policy. Uh, that that is from his bio. So so how he views his his priorities, and uh, I think they match up pretty well with uh, the work that he's done. It's important to note for uh, this episode that Senator Coons is a has a law degree from Yale Law School, also a master's in ethics from Yale Div from Yale Divinity School. He also studied at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Really incredible person interesting background. Senator Coons is someone who speaks frequently at churches across the state. He's someone who's been giving really thoughtful reflections in writing and in talks on the role of faith. He was a co-chair of the National Prayer Breakfast for the last session. And so this isn't just sort of talk for Senator Coons. He's, He's really stepped up in an important way. And so we talk about all of that I think this is going to give you a really good insight to the argument that is happening in the country and and even in the Democratic Party right now about some of these issues and what the what the party's approach should be and I'm glad you'll be able to hear it friends honored to introduce this conversation to you with Senator Chris Coons. Senator Coons, thank you so much for being with us on the Faith 2020 podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for a chance to be on with you, Michael. This is an important conversation that I think in this context has actually gotten more urgent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's jump right in. You've endorsed your friend and former vice president and senator from your state of Delaware, Joe Biden, and his presidential bid. And I'll ask you a couple questions about that soon. But first, I'd like to start a bit broader and ask what you see as the political opportunity for Democrats when it comes to faith in 2020. Why do you think faith outreach is important for Democrats? 
I think it's important for Democrats to be who they are. And who we are is people overwhelmingly who are moved by our faith to be engaged in the work of caring for and engaging with um, others, in particular people in need. Um, And to the extent we remember that tradition and honestly reflect that reality, uh, I think voters across the country will respond to us better because they'll see us being our true selves. There is a misperception in the Washington Twitter-fueled cable chattering class that the quote-unquote base of the Democratic Party is somehow millennial and atheist, and it's neither. As you've seen more than perhaps anyone uh, I know, our base nationally um, is diverse and um, very actively faithful and broadly moved to be engaged in politics by the values that inform them, and those values are overwhelmingly um, shaped by a childhood experience of faith or a conversion to faith. So um, when we act or talk as if we um, disrespect or are unaware of Hmm. um, the faith basis of most of our progressive values, um, we're just forgetting the best in who we've been and who we should be. Yeah. In your view, just how much does Donald Trump affect this opportunity? Do Democrats have a greater opportunity with people of faith, in your view, in light of his presidency and how he's governed and the man he is? Well, I think what matters is that um, we're honest about ourselves, who we are, what we want to do, and we listen to people's needs and concerns and, and then, frankly, act on it. Hmm. Um, I would prefer that we campaign as if the man barely exists. Mm-hmm. And just, I don't think it helps one bit to spend one minute of our time saying, have you noticed this guy did this, this, or that? <laughs> like, they know, they get yeah. it. We won't advance our interests, our cause, our agenda one inch by wasting one minute pointing to Donald Trump. Hmm. We are so much better off listening to the people of America who believe they have been ignored. Yeah showing how we intend to work with them, for them, and do things that will make our country better. Um, And drive the car looking through the windshield, not through the side mirrors or the rearview mirror. Hmm. And spending too much time and too much effort on, hey, by the way, did you notice Donald Trump is uh, an unconventional president? (laughs) Doesn't help us at all. As you travel around Delaware and really around the around the country, I know you were very involved in in the midterms in 2018. What are the issues and messages that you're seeing resonate most with Americans of faith uh, in various faith communities in America? Everybody is concerned about um, an opioid crisis, an addiction, and um, suffering crisis that uh, doesn't discriminate in any way. It affects. Families and individuals of all backgrounds, all incomes, all ages, all ethnicities, all faiths. And uh, bluntly, it comes out of, uh, I think, a spiritual hunger, a deep crisis in terms of alienation, disconnection, a sense of mm. a loss of any hope or possibility. Um, addiction has a lot of different causes and drivers. Um, some of them are purely physiological. You know, people be, become either alcoholics or addicts in, in no small part because of um, having a born um, yeah, predisposition, right. but it's also contextual. You know, someone goes in for a hip replacement, ends up on a pain medication prescription, and six months later is actually now um, addicted to opioids. Understanding what this means 
listening to people who've lost a loved one or a mm-hmm. child or who is struggling themselves with it, and then being clear about this is something we care about, we're going to fight for. That's not ideological. That's not partisan. That's just doing our jobs. And on some level, you got millions of Americans who, who don't think we're doing our jobs because mm-hmm. we're spending a lot of time fighting about other stuff. Mm-hmm. Every minute we spend talking about the Mueller report that is not matched or exceeded by a minute we are sitting listening to, caring for, and then responding to people who are suffering from opioids is a minute we're not showing what our heart calls us to mm-hmm. do. So whether it's prescription drug prices, affordable right. college, job skills and training, yeah. or dealing with the opioid crisis, there are challenges that working families all across our country face that they wonder if we even notice. Yeah. Start by mm. listening, <laughs> then by acting, then by talking. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, you know, there's a saying that you know, attention is one of the greatest forms of of love that you show. You show love and care for people by just paying them attention. I think that's that's really poignant, uh, Michael. I think we have a tendency to try and come up with five point plans and powerpoints <laughs> and policy agendas that <laughs> miss the whole point. People don't care how much you know or how good your policies are until they know how much you care. Hmm. And I'm not sure we've succeeded at, at showing our concern. Yeah. As I mentioned, you've uh, endorsed former Vice, Vice President Biden in, this, uh, in the 2020 presidential campaign. Do you believe he's up to the task of reaching out to Americans of faith and including them in his campaign and his presidency should he be elected? Of course. I wouldn't have endorsed him otherwise. Um, look, Joe is someone who um, hasn't hesitated to share the ways in which uh, his own faith has informed his service and his work, has carried him through some incredibly hard times at the beginning of his public service career and now, you know, very late in his life and his, and his public service career. At both ends of his career in public service, in his last years as vice president, in his first years in the Senate, um, Joe and his family endured really remarkable tragedies, really heart-rending tragedies. And he is clear that his faith is what got him through it. Joe's also someone who doesn't hesitate to say that there are tensions at times between his faith and his personal views and the the challenges, the context of partisan politics and the ways in which um, our culture and our political values have changed um, from those he was raised with. And one of the things I most admire about Joe is he has in a few critical moments led on progressive issues and been able to show how progressive values are gospel values. Hmm. I want to pick up on that point. Um, one thing that I've appreciated about sort of your public statements about Democrats and faith and really just faith in American life is I think we're in agreement that for far too long, one or two issues have unfairly monopolized discourse around faith and politics, crowding out religious people who care about poverty or the environment, civil rights, immigration reform, so many other issues. Um, but those one or two issues are relevant as well. And the issue of abortion has been a major topic of not just political conversation, conversation but polit- policy action at the state and federal level this year so far. Uh, Vice President Biden made headlines recently for announcing he no longer supported uh, the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal funds from funding abortion. 
uh, Hyde had long been bipartisan policy uh, and uh, sort of followed Roe v. Wade as a legislative action in response to Roe. Uh, news reports have suggested a number of different reasons for the change, but among them was a New York Times report that you were one of the key voices urging Biden to change his position. Can you explain why and for how long you've, oppo- you've opposed Hyde? And what reflections do you have on how the conversation on Hyde and perhaps even the debates we've seen around abortion this year have unfolded? Um, abortion is one of um, the most challenging issues, I think, for the faith community broadly. Um, it has been turned into um, a sort of litmus test of whether or not you are faithful by certain uh, denominations and approaches. Um, it is a challenging and troubling issue no matter where you come from. I think whether you're a humanist, a person yeah, of faith, right. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, otherwise. So mm. um, I don't think we should approach it lightly. My personal sense of it is that for decades, there's been a relative balance between a commitment to spending hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, on women's health mm. And in order to sustain the investment of tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, forgive me, of investments in women's health, um, a condition of getting that through the Congress was accepting the Hyde Amendment as a constraint. Everybody who is currently serving in the Senate, including all of my colleagues who are running for the presidency, has voted for the Hyde Amendment often many times, unless they consistently voted against keeping the government open. And then I'd ask, why did they consistently vote against keeping the government open, even when it was being led by President Obama and a Democratic Senate? What has changed is the composition of the Supreme Court, the composition of other federal courts, the position of the Republican majority in the Senate, the position of Republicans in states across the country who very recently have advanced truly extreme laws on the use of Um, the force of law to criminalize abortion in all cases, including rape and incest and health of the mother, um, in a half dozen states across the country. Um, I I view this as they've sort of broken this longstanding shared agreement that we were going to invest tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in women's health and access to reproductive health. Um, And it's moved our understanding of what what is an appropriate balance we can strike. Um, one criticism of the vice president is that he's too bipartisan, too moderate, that he just doesn't understand not just how bad Trump is, but Republicans in general. You're someone who's managed to build relationships across the aisle that have had real political consequences. What do you think is the best way to engage Donald Trump, your Republican colleagues, and a very different question, I think, Republican voters? Okay, those are three different questions. Let me see if I can deal with them each in order. Um, folks who mistakenly think that Joe Biden is, quote unquote, too bipartisan are typically coming from a frame of reference where they are um, imagining a future where there are no Republicans yes. in Congress mm-hmm. and where somehow math has been reversed or repealed and we don't need a Republican vote to get anything done. Um, that's just not reality, in my view. Um, even if we have uh, a supermajority in Congress. If we ram through legislation that has not one Democrat, excuse me, not one Republican vote, um, the backlash is swift. Um, the reversal is fierce. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think Joe Biden is at all uh, deluded about how obstructionist and difficult the current Republican majority in the Senate is to work with. Um, he was, after all, routinely mm-hmm. up in the Senate 
advocating for the legislative priorities of the Obama-Biden administration, um, the one who was trying hammer and tongs to negotiate with McConnell or to get judges confirmed or bring us down and have a conversation at the vice president's residence. He That's is right. perfectly well aware hmm. of just how hard an environment this is. He also knows that the design of our system requires compromise, that democracy without compromise doesn't work. So what he is expressing is not a lack of clarity about reality. It is hope that Republican voters will send to Congress different senators and House members who are willing and able to compromise. In the absence of that, he has demonstrated he's perfectly willing and able to advance bold initiatives, whether it's the Affordable Care Act, uh, the Recovery Act, the uh, ad- being an advocate for marriage equality, um, that, that move beyond uh, what was Republican obstruction on a number of fronts. Um, how do I think we best engage with both Republican voters and my colleagues? I just literally an hour ago on the floor had a very heartfelt conversation with James Langford. James is mm-hmm. a uh, conservative Republican from Oklahoma. Um, he has a divinity degree. We were co-chairs of the prayer breakfast, the weekly Senate prayer breakfast and the national prayer breakfast in the last Congress. Um, and we were talking through some very um, challenging issues. I won't get into the specifics. It was a private conversation. But you start by listening to each other. You start by getting to know each other's families and contexts and concerns and by willing to be humble about um, the absolute certainty you have about how right you are and how wrong the other person is. Hmm. Um, if you can find the space in your heart to actually sit down at Thanksgiving with members of your extended family who drive you nuts and who disagree with you politically, it is in some ways equally if not more urgent that we find the space in our hearts to listen to and sit down with legislators who represent the parts of the country that are dominated by those discordant voices. Yeah. Um, the problem we're having I think, as a country, is that those of us who are here day in and day out, not just once a year sitting around a Thanksgiving table, not just once a year at some family reunion, but who have to work with each other, um, are getting messages from our voters who say, don't get along, don't compromise, be more extreme, uh, take tougher and more inflexible positions. Um, That means the message that at least a majority of my colleagues seem to be getting from their constituents is, break the place, uh, engage in partisan warfare so severe that nothing works, that the government shuts down. Uh, I don't know about other people's states, but the state of Delaware, I actually hear from a lot of people who ask me to be more compromising, to be more willing um, to work together, to be more persistent at finding ways to advance uh, the core values that, that I got elected on in a bipartisan way. That means um, there are some things that I care deeply about where I know we're not going to make progress this week, this month, or this year. I'm introducing, for example, a a climate change-related carbon fee and dividend bill um, in the coming days. Um, I'm disappointed it's not going to be bipartisan. Um, Senator Flake and I introduced a bipartisan Mm. version of this in the last Congress. Um, Some of my legislating is pragmatic. It's moving very small bills, but bills so that we exercise the muscles of legislating. Hmm. Some of my bills are prophetic. Uh, I'm not able to ever get current Republicans on it. Hmm. Um, But I do a lot of reminding Republicans about their history. 
Um, they were more progressive than Democrats on mm. the environment, on civil liberties, on civil rights mm. just a few decades ago. And it's maybe worth um, reconnecting some of my colleagues with their, their party history. Yeah. You are someone who cares about getting things done. In addition to the le- legislation you just mentioned, you've uh, uh, sponsored and have led the way on a retirement savings bill that you've uh, co-sponsored with uh, with Senator Amy Klobuchar that would pr- promote greater economic security for millions of American families. And I believe you've said you think you can get Republican support for that bill, which is essential, as you said, to making any legislation a law rather than just a messaging vehicle. And then today, uh, you were a part of the effort um, to get over $4 billion in aid to address the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. Uh, in a time when many feel a sense of fatalistic resignation, why do you still believe government can do good and be good? And how can American citizens help to ensure that is the case? Uh, first, American citizens can help ensure that's the case by putting your damn phones down and turning off the TV. Um, you know, less time on Twitter, less time watching stuff on TV that is designed to outrage you mm. and activate you. Uh, and more time being contemplative and then being engaged. I urge folks who come to my town halls or who um, come up to me and meet with me at events and seem completely anxious and, and frustrated and yeah. hyperventilating about the yeah, conditions yeah. of things. So, you know, go... Go spend time, you know, at an animal shelter, at a garden club, mm. at a uh, library board, at a civic association. Go mm. meet real people. Yeah. Um, I think social media has had a profoundly negative effect on our society yeah. at all levels and all ages. It's not just teenagers who are obsessed with these things. Sure. Um, it is making us more isolated, less connected, and less uh, community-spirited. Mm. So I first, I urge people to do things that aren't partisan and that aren't political, but that are community building. Yeah. Um, I, I met with a young man today who's one of my interns who's a volunteer firefighter. Mm. Uh, he's a volunteer firefighter in a, in a very conservative town in Delaware where I'm pretty sure I lost by a pretty sizable margin. <laughs> um, I didn't ask about his politics. I asked about his service. Mm. Listen to him talk about what it is he gets out of being a volunteer firefighter uh, and how that helps not just keep his community safe, but build the circle of people he knows are his neighbors. Um, what is it we ought to be doing as a country um, to help restore some faith in the possibility of public service and of government being a positive? First is remind people of the remarkable things we've accomplished together in one lifetime. Hmm. Uh, I'm meeting hmm. with Bill Gates this week. Um, Bill Gates is you know, one of America's richest, most iconic uh, people. He took on um, the audacious goal in partnership with millions of Rotarians in this country, of eliminating polio. And he, he brings um, the sort of dogged analytical skill set and uh, private sector uh, mentality that made him a successful businessman to analyzing why we have not yet fully eradicated polio. Um, and we are closer and closer. I have been to each of the countries where polio still exists mm-hmm. in the wild, and it's gone from you know 20 to 8 right. to 4 I think this year to three, um, and we are talking the most remote and most dangerous places in countries like Nigeria and Pakistan, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, Somalia, that we are able to do things like that, mm-hmm. eradicate a disease from the earth right. um, that, yeah. that affected, that sickened, mm-hmm. that killed um, yep. millions at one point in time, um, is a reminder um, of what is possible um, in terms of inventions and discoveries, in terms of 
our willingness to reach out and make our neighbor of people literally on the other side of huh. the globe of different uh, faiths and languages and ethnicities. Um, it, it's pretty audacious stuff if yeah. you think about it. We have seen um, the number of people living in abject poverty in the world yeah. cut in half yep. in just the last 20 years. If you That's look right. at any of the numbers about um, infant and maternal health, about um, access to clean water and electricity, about access to educational opportunities, the world is a less harsh, more hopeful and more positive place today hmm. than it was when I was a young person. And in large part because of the collective action of the American people through our government, through development activity, and through volunteerism, and through faith organizations and their service. Right. So why should we be hopeful? I don't know. Look at the things we've overcome. Why should we be committed to this work going forward? Because nothing else works. Yeah. Um, rather than sort of dread and despair and isolation, um, I think... The best way to find yourself, as Gandhi once said, is to lose yourself in service to others. I think that is excellent advice today as it was decades and decades ago when he first said that. Hmm. Um, I think humbling ourselves and then taking on the great challenges of the world of this generation and recognizing that government is the most effective way that we can all collectively have a large-scale impact on the condition of our neighbors uh, is the best thing we could possibly be doing together. Yeah. The, the last question I have for you. Uh, so uh, this podcast has a diverse audience of folks from across the political spectrum and across the religious spectrum. Uh, I know that many of our listeners, uh, like many Americans, are folks who are not supporters of President Trump, strongly oppose many of his policies and are repulsed by his character but also find Democrats' approach to the issue of abortion, for example, to be morally problematic as well. These aren't just far-right conservative Republicans, but Democrats and independents. On Hyde, for instance, uh, recent polling showed that 41% of Democratic women support Hyde compared to 39 who do not. Uh, 36% of liberals, uh, self-identified liberals, support Hyde. 47% of moderates, 41% of those who voted for Barack Obama in 2012. These folks do not often get to hear from Democrats and Democratic candidates uh, who are willing to ask for their votes, even knowing that there are serious disagreements. As we head into this presidential election, not just the uh, uh, not just the general, but the primary, uh, what is the case you would make as a Democrat, as a Democrat who runs broad-reaching campaigns in, in Delaware and, and earns the support of so many of your uh, uh, Delawareans? Uh, uh, what is the case that you would make to these kinds of voters to support the Democratic nominee, support the Democratic Party in 2020? Uh, well, first, I think. Um, that's a case we still have to make. And we have to make it by where we go, who we listen to, how we demonstrate our care and concern, and what exactly we say we want to do. So it's less about the talking and more about the doing first. Second, um, you know, I think if we, if we take seriously um, the question, who is our neighbor? Hmm. And we follow um, what I think is the radical parable of the Good Samaritan, in which Jesus taught that um, not the obvious examples, not the religious leader, not the civic or community leader, not the person who takes the safe way, but the person who actually makes the beaten and, and, and struggling and suffering man his neighbor is a person of an outcast, hated, distrusted 
um, religious and minority group, the Samaritans. Hmm. Um, you know, the Good Samaritan is such a common phrase. Right. I think an awful lot of folks kind of blip over that. Yeah. Um, what Jesus was doing in that parable was really challenging the frame of reference of the time he was in. Huh. He did that over and over, um, speaking to the woman at the well. Um, the, the folks he chose to associate himself with, tax collectors and lepers, people who were actually carrying out the oppression of the Roman Empire on the Jewish people. That's a tax collector. And stealing from their own people. I mean, really reprehensible people. Um, Lepers who were outcast by society, not just out of fear and ignorance, but because in some cases, leprosy is actually catching, right? I mean, so these these are like exactly the people who good and decent folk would not associate with. Right. So um, what is the case I would make? Look look at where we spend our time and what we do. Hmm. Are we caring about the good and decent people who dedicate themselves to building our society and the folks who are marginalized and outcast and the folks who are um, otherwise unloved or considered unlovable? So if you care about children... You should care about not just our children, but all children. You should care about children of immigrants. You should care about children of prisoners. You should care about children who are detained. You should care about children who are young. You should care about children who are not yet born. And we should find a way to work together to make sure that every child is healthy, safe, loved, and valued. And if we can find a path together that makes that our reality, um, then I think all of us um, can rest more comfortable knowing um, that we've done just one little bit to advance the Torah values, the gospel values, um, the Quranic values that I think inform a lot of people of faith in their passion for trying to make our society better. Senator Coons, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your leadership and your posture and, and wish you well in this, uh, in this season of service. Thanks, Mike. Wow, there was quite a lot of news in that interview. There were arguments that I hadn't really heard before about certain decisions that had been made and and some of the approach that Senator Coons thought the Democratic Party should take moving forward. Uh, Just a fascinating conversation with Senator Coons. Again, we're really grateful for him in the resources for this episode, you'll be able to find a recent article for The Atlantic that Senator Coons wrote about some of these ideas around how the Democratic Party should uh, take faith seriously. Would also urge you to follow Senator Coons on Twitter. His feed is one that I find to be, like him, enriching and focused on public service. There, there isn't a whole lot of like cheap shots and you know some of this uh, you know trivialization of stuff that we see even among some of our elected officials today, Senator Chris Coons' feed is one that you could follow and actually get insight into how government is working and serving, uh, how he's uh, viewing his role of service. And so would urge you to follow him on Twitter. Uh, friends, that is all we have uh, for this episode. I'm excited to move forward with our interviews. We're going to have debates to talk about in the next episode. Uh, We're going to have, hopefully, potentially some new faith hires. And we're going to bring all that news to you. We're going to bring you the leading voices in 2020. We're going to keep an eye on President Trump and what he's doing. So be sure that we'll address President Trump's recent visit to the Faith and Freedom Coalition 
there's going to be a lot to cover and I'm so glad to be able to be walking through it with you. Friends, I'm Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Anne Campaign. Learn more about the Anne Campaign by visiting annecampaign.org. Again, that's andcampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. Our guest this week was United States Senator Chris Coons, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020.